I don't know about you, but when I think of finding gold, the image that comes to mind first is like panning for gold, the old prospector with that weird hat that they wear with the thing flapped up in the front. He's got his little pan down by the river, sifting through the mud to get some of the flecks out. You know, in reality, the vast majority of gold is mined, of course, deep within the earth. Gold usually exists in very small particles in the mining process. They blow up a bunch of rock and then smash all of that into dust and then turn it into a slurry and then chemically treat that slurry to suck the gold together and get it out. Uh, Sometimes in those mines, they find great veins of gold formed as a deposit. The veins of gold ore might be a couple of yards wide. It's pretty neat to see some of the pictures of it, of the guy standing in front of it. Or it might be like one they found in Burma back in 2012. It's 10 miles wide at some points and almost 120 miles long. Now, Daniel 9 is like a vein of gold like that. In the treasure chest of God's Word, it's one of the crown jewels among the riches. In all the, you know, cartoons or pirate movies, right, they always make it to the treasure house or the treasure chest, and it's filled with all good stuff, right, doubloons and crowns and things like that, but there's always the one thing, like, they grab and they pull, and it's always the big ruby or the big emerald or the the, uh, great crown jewel, and, you know, Daniel 9 is kind of like that. It's like a, a, a magnificent jewel there among the riches of Scripture. This chapter contains what is known as the 70 weeks vision. It's immensely important as far as prophecy is concerned. Scholars frequently call this the backbone to Bible prophecy. Dr. John Walvoord calls it the key passage to understanding all Bible prophecy. Charles Feinberg wrote that it was one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. And Arno Gabaline said that the prophetic message in this chapter is perhaps the most important, not only in the book of Daniel, but in the whole Bible. And so, a great, great section of Scripture. But not only is Daniel 9 significant because of the prophecy it contains, but it is also home to one of the most remarkable prayers recorded in all of God's Word. In fact, what we'll learn here is that twice as much space is dedicated to Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 as is given to the vision of the 70 weeks. This prayer shines like pure and polished gold uh, refined after many, many years in the heat of Babylon. Tonight, we're going to take a look at that prayer, but I do want us to try to resist the urge to look at this prayer as a formula for our own prayer lives. Uh, It's gold we're finding here. It's not iron. It's not iron we're going to smash together and use for, you know, uh, our own, you know, purposes here. It's gold. It's a shining treasure. If you read commentaries on these verses, the majority of them will start immediately calling this the model prayer for us and break it down methodically. And they'll uh, use this prayer as an example of, quote, how to be persuasive in prayer, is one, how one put it. By a great guy, love his book, and it's great commentary, he's a wonderful man of God, but that's the general attitude. Okay, take apart this prayer and see how it's put together and then apply that to your prayer life and that's how you have a rich prayer life and you'll be persuasive in prayer as well. And there are a couple of problems with this approach to uh, reading the recorded prayers of Scripture uh, or like this. Uh, first of all, the point of prayer is that it be genuine and personal. You know, Jesus did not like the prayers of the Pharisees, which were mechanical and impersonal, complex, and, you know, very smart-sounding and all of that, but Jesus wasn't interested uh, in any of that. And, and the point of prayer is that it be genuine, that it be personal. 
No one you know as a friend or a loved one wants you to communicate with them according to a formula, right? Do you want anyone that you love or that you are acquainted with or friends with, do you want anyone to speak with you in a robotic way? Or even worse, do you want some friend of yours at work to study the way your husband or your wife talks to you and then say, I'm just going to copy the way they talk to him, and I'm going to talk to them that way? That would be very strange, right? I mean, it would almost be offensive even. If somebody started talking to you the way your spouse talks to you or the way your, you know, your father or your mother talks to you, you'd be like, what are you doing? That's weird. You know, and sometimes people even have, hey, that's a nickname only my spouse uses for me, or that, that's something that, you know, only we can joke about. And so it would be very strange if anybody else talked to us in a sort of mechanical uh, facsimile way where they were just copying somebody else. But even on another level, it's almost comical to come to this inspirational prayer of Daniel here in chapter 9. A man who had lived a faithful, fruitful, powerful life serving God for at least 80 years at this point, and then just kind of come up to this prayer and say, okay, I'll copy that and uh, I'll have a great prayer life for myself. That's not how it works. Earlier today, I saw a video that had been uploaded by John Mayer, the pop singer. He's known for his guitar work, his guitar solos. He's a masterful guitar player. And the video was just, it was seven minutes of him in the studio working through a part of some new song he's released, I guess, and just developing the solo for that song in the solo, little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit until finally it was all done. And uh, what was printed there on the album is what everybody hears. Now, he's finding his way to what will be the impressive finished product, right? Now, we all know that if someone tried to copy that video, they could. They could use the kind of guitar he used. They could stand the way he was standing. They could mimic the notes as he played. But that doesn't make their playing as amazing as John Mayer's, right? No one would think, well, you're as good as John Mayer. They say, well, you're just copying a video that you were watching. Because his playing, of course, in that video we know is the culmination of decades of growth and determination and dedication. You don't just get to copy the notes that he's playing and then say, okay, well, you're, you're a master. You can go out and play behind John Mayer. Or you can headline an arena or anything like that. Of course, we understand that in, on that level. And so we shouldn't bring Daniel's prayer into a lab and try to reverse engineer it and say, okay, let's copy the steps he took and then my prayer life will be powerful and persuasive. Rather, we should focus on this godly man and learn from his character, and more importantly, focus on the God he's talking about in this prayer, not the schematic of his sentences. Uh, look at the man rather than the method. Look at the object of Daniel's worship rather than the arrangement of his words. So as we do that, let's open in verse 1 here. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, in the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Daniel had been in Babylon about 67 years at this point. And the quick takeaways from these opening verses that are frequently pointed out uh, is that, number one, though Daniel was a prophet, he was still a student of prophecy. 
Uh, he certainly didn't walk around thinking, hey, you know, I'm actually being inspired to write some of the Bible, so I don't need to read the rest of this stuff. I'm always encouraged by what Peter says in one of his letters. He says, hey, and you know the stuff that Paul's writing, it's hard to understand, but hey, you guys should pay attention to that. And it shows that these guys, these godly men... <coughs> Even though God was using them and speaking to them and speaking through them, even though Daniel was a prophet, he was still a student of the word, still a student of Bible prophecy. He had spent a long life looking into the scriptures that he had. He certainly didn't have as much as we do, but he spent his life looking into the scriptures that he had. But even here, as an elderly man, he was still finding new veins of gold in that inexhaustible mine of God's word. And number two, Daniel interpreted prophecy literally. Very important. We keep coming back to this again and again in the book of Daniel. Daniel believed that 70 years meant 70 years. It was pretty plain and simple. It wasn't an allegory. It wasn't spiritualized. Daniel's reading this. It dawns on him what he's reading, and he starts doing the math in his head. He realizes, hey, we're at the tail end of this thing. I just may live to see uh, the return of God's people back to their city and back to their land. He would have no doubt also a copy of Isaiah, which was written long before, and Isaiah had pointed at a fellow named Cyrus who would be involved in this process, and now guess what? There was a Cyrus on the world scene, in the political you know, landscape. God was moving just as he said he would, and Daniel uh, was thinking about that, reading about that. And here's what he did in response in verse three. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, I find it interesting that in all the commentaries that talk about how we should pattern our prayers in the manner of Daniel's prayer here, from the ones that I read, not one of them said, but first drive down to Michael's and get yourself some burlap to wear, right? Not one of them said that. Not one of them said, of course, before you go to the prayer meeting, start a wood fire and make some ashes so you can pour them over your head periodically while you're praying. Uh, instead, there's like, hey, look, Daniel, you know, uh, he said, he started his prayer by saying certain things about God, and then he moved to confession, and then he went to his request, and that's how you should pattern your prayer. And they sort of skip over this first part. They sort of say, well, Daniel prepared for his prayer meeting, his, for his prayer time. Um, and, you know, listen, if we're supposed to copy Daniel's method, then copy his method, copy his whole method. If you're saying that, hey, this is the secret in the Bible, the pattern for an effective persuasive prayer life, okay, then get out the sackcloth and ashes. We can't just sort of cut up the parts that seem good and seem sort of spiritual to us and say, well, those are the parts that I need to copy and pattern and mimic, and the rest of that, yeah, here, get hung up on that kind of stuff. But I think, unfortunately, things can become a burden to us that like, hey, did you pray like Daniel today? How much confession was you? What was the percentage of the confession in your prayer life today? Hey, of course we need to confess before the Lord. But this isn't meant to be a burden to us that you're praying the wrong way. This is to be an inspiration to us of like, look at what a godly person, how he prays to his God and interacts with his God and the kind of heart that he had and how that drove him to prayer and what his sort of prayers look like. Rather than mimic the mechanics of Daniel's prayer, we note simply that as he did when he was a youth back in chapters one and two, Daniel clearly believed in the power of prayer. He clearly believed it was a crucial part of everyday life and that it was something he practiced at a variety of intensities, right? 
Uh, We haven't seen him put sackcloth on before, but we've seen him pray plenty of times. When he found out, you know, there in chapter six that, hey, they're going to kill you for praying, he didn't go to fasting and sackcloth on that time. He just went home and prayed like he normally did upstairs three times that day. And so, In the Bible, we see many effective prayers, many inspiring prayers, things that stir our spirit and cause us to think, wow, look at that prayer, look at how tenderhearted that is, look at how that moved, you know, the heart of heaven and those sorts of things. And you know what? Some of those prayers were planned, some of them were spontaneous, some of them are long and complex, and one of the greatest ones in all the Bible is just, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and that's it. And, and so prayer isn't supposed to be mechanical. It's supposed to be personal. It's supposed to be born out of your life on an individual level. Verse 4, and I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. John Phillips and Jerry Vines write, Daniel scoured the Hebrew language for words to describe just how wickedly the Jews had behaved. And of course, we note that Daniel included himself in that mix. It's always we and us throughout this chapter. He does not try to excuse himself or separate himself from the crowd of sinners. Man, look at those terrible people over there. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector. He doesn't do anything like that, nothing Pharisee about Daniel. And, you know, it's interesting because when we think of Daniel, when we talk about Daniel as students of, of the Bible, we're quick to say, hey, he's one of the only figures in the Old Testament, one of the only figures in the Bible apart from Jesus where there are no sins attributed to him. Uh, he's, this, he's this pillar of uprightness and integrity and faithfulness, and rightly so. And yet, like Paul the Apostle, Daniel was clearly acutely aware of his sin before God. He knew that there is none righteous, no, not one, not him, not anyone else. You know, you only had to look toward God for an instant and realize the bankruptcy of even the most religious upright man. And remember, Daniel is probably the most upright man in all the world at this point. And he says, man, Lord, man, have we done wickedly. A man, have I done wickedly in comparison to your greatness and comparison to your perfection. And he highlighted not only God's greatness and his power, but he especially highlighted God's mercy. And God would have us look on God in this prayer and look at his mercy and see how merciful and gracious the Lord is. We're reminded of God's greatness. We're reminded of his awesomeness, his fidelity, his powerful grace. But most of all, it's God's mercy highlighted in this prayer, and that's a great thing. Though the Lord's people had refused to do good and had, in fact, gone and done evil, still God reached out to them. He showed his power through many infallible signs. He sent his word as a special revelation and as a prescription for their lives. He sent servants and prophets and messenger after messenger to try to coax his people back from the brink of their sin. God reached out to the highest levels of their government, their kings, their princes, their fathers, down to the general population, to individual families. And yet again and again, 
God's people walked away from God's plan. They walked away from his commands. They rebelled, sometimes violently, killing his servants, scoffing at God, blaspheming. Uh, It's a sad, sad story. But think for a moment, we want to focus on the Lord, on who God is, what kind of God the Bible reveals. Think about God's love for rebels. You know, the world is small these days. We get news from Venezuela. We get news from Syria. We get news from all over the world of all of this unrest and things going on and different rebellion uprisings. And whether you agree with, you know, this government or if you agree with this rebel group or whatever, there's all of these sort of rebel uprisings that come across the news feeds. Now, think for a minute about God's love for rebels, You know, the Bible explains that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were far from God, hostile in our minds toward him, proliferating in evil. We were at war with God actively, and all the while, God is drawing toward us, trying to show us his love, trying to show us that while we're busy in rebellion, he wants to set us free. He wants to save us from death. And he wants to get us into his royal family so that we can rule and reign with him. That's God's love for rebels who are coming and saying, hey, we want to we throw this God off the throne. We want to be in charge. And, and what's so amazing is that God is saying, yeah, I, I still love you. I knew that that's who, what you were going to do and who you were going to be. And, and guess what? I, I'm trying to, to invite you into my forever family. I'm trying to include you in my inheritance so that you can rule and reign with me. And God loves uh, the rebel in that way. He has mercy for uh, rebels like you and I. Verse seven says, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. I just kept thinking of all those stupid, all I got was this lousy t-shirts, shirts. You ever see, does anybody own one of the, I went to wherever and all I got was this lousy t-shirt? I don't know why. Maybe it was just too cold in my office or something, but I just kept thinking of this. Israel's national motto at that time could have been, I went to the world and all I got was this lousy captivity. You know, they had ran away from the God who loved them, the God who formed them into a nation, a God who had sustained them, who had brought them out of Egypt, who had brought them through the wilderness, who had given them a promised land and helped them to conquer it, a God whose very presence was in their midst, a God who established a kingdom for them in the line of David, all of these things that God had done, all the promises that he made. He says, man, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to have all of this crop yield. You're not going to have mis." carriages. You're going to have all of these different things if you'll follow after me. And they say, eh, we want to go out to the world and see what we can get out there. And all they got was captivity. All they got was destruction. Sin is always a destroyer. It is always a deceiver. Look at what sin did to Israel. Look around at the world today and see what sin does all around us. To people you know in the wider world, that's what sin does. It lies and it destroys. That's all it ever does. It makes a lot of promises, but man, all you come away with is captivity and destruction and sorrow. There's no failure on God's part at all. That's what Daniel says. He's full of love and compassion. He's full of righteousness. 
Mankind, on the other hand, so often chooses darkness rather than the light. I appreciate how Daniel just owned this stuff. He says, you know, Lord, shame of face belongs to us. Daniel, in this prayer, he demonstrates so many things that we're pretty bad at, especially in our culture in America. Things like humility and selflessness, self-awareness, owning, having our personal responsibility of the mistakes that we've made. I mean, there's just a ton of lessons about the, the culture of God and the biblical culture of how we can walk with the Lord in comparison to our own culture that is so self-oriented and so devoid of personal responsibility and so self-absorbed and not aware of what we're doing. And Daniel just says, he owns it. He says, man, this belongs to us. By no means is he being too hard on himself or his countrymen. This is simply the reality of the human heart. And it makes us realize just how magnificent God's long-suffering mercy is. I also find it interesting that in this prayer, which was prompted by the reading of the promises of God, remember, Daniel's reading, God promised this was going to be over in 70 years. He breaks out his calendar. He says, oh man, it's almost 70 years. And so he says, well, God's going to bring us back into the land. And so he's reading about the promises of God. But I found it interesting. Daniel does not spend any time in this prayer declaring things for himself or claiming promises. He spends time confessing and honoring God and humbling himself and just adoring the Lord for his mercy. And I'm not saying that that's the pattern we always need to follow, but right now it's in fashion in the wider Christian community, the wider Christian culture to sort of emphasizing this idea of I claim promises all the time and I'm going to declare things in my prayer. And, you know, perhaps there's a time and place for that, uh, but it wasn't part of Daniel's prayer at all here. And if anybody had opportunity to start declaring things and demanding things and claiming things before the Lord in prayer, I'd say it's Daniel on the eve of God accomplishing his promises. And so Daniel here is specifically praying about how God was going to accomplish these things, and yet he remains humble and he remains uh, uh, just in awe of the Lord. He's not trying to uh, dictate anything to the Lord, rather he is just falling upon God's mercy and acknowledging who he is and who the Lord is. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. The repetition here brings out the genuine personal character of the prayer. I'd say that Daniel certainly wasn't praying through some formula, right? If you're praying through a formula, you don't typically have the kind of circling back around to the same ideas the way that we see here. Daniel's pouring out his heart on behalf of his people. He's feeling the weight of his own sin and the weight of the national sin, and he's glorying in the multiplied mercies of God. And here, Daniel points out that what had happened to Israel should have come as no surprise to anyone. It was the covenant they had agreed to. Way back with Moses in the wilderness, they had signed on the dotted line. 
God had been very clear. He had been very explicit. He said, here is the agreement. You know, when those things pop up on your phone, we changed our end user license agreement. Agree, 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 agree. The ones that make me upset are the ones that force you to scroll to the bottom before they let you push agree. Come on. No, let's all stop pretending. None of us are reading this. I can't use the app unless I hit agree. So just let me hit agree. I know I'm like signing away my life and all my rights and all that kind of stuff. But that's not what happened with Israel. God brought Israel there. He says, hey, here's what's happening. I'm making you a nation. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Here's what you're agreeing to. If you follow after me, and here's what it means to follow after me, here's what I'm going to do for you. If you rebel and refuse to do that, here's what is going to happen. Do you agree? And they said, absolutely. Sign us up. And there's a long section in uh, Deuteronomy that talks about, hey, here's what happens if you break this agreement. And it's long, and it's drawn out, and it's detailed. And the people said, yeah, yeah, we're into that. We sign on. And so it shouldn't have been any surprise. The Lord was clear. And you know what? They broke the covenant. And even then, God waited hundreds of years for them to repent. When they wouldn't, the Lord kept up his end of the bargain. And we can be sure that God will keep his word. What we read about in God's word, when we read about his precepts and his principles, he's going to do those things. That's who he is. That's how he acts. He's going to keep his word every step of the way. Our spiritual decisions have real world consequences for us and for those around us. Israel, for there's a time where they say, ah, oh, we've got the temple. We're fine. And the Lord's like, no, your spiritual decision has real world consequences, not just for you and not just for your family, but for whole nations in some regards. And you know, our real world decisions always have a spiritual component. Ah, it's just something I was doing. What's the Lord getting bent out of shape for? It's no big deal. And so we need to think about this. And Daniel is saying to here, hey, this was all written in your word. This was all clear as day. And so we as people who want to be submitted under the authority of God's word, we have to recognize that our spiritual decisions have real-world consequences, and every real-world decision has a spiritual component. There's just no way around that. But that's why God has given us precepts and judgments so that we can know the way we should go, how we can walk in obedience and experience that everlasting life that he wants to give us and that he has given us as his people. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, you brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day. We have sinned, we have done wickedly. As Daniel looked around him and surveyed the spiritual condition of God's people there in Babylon, it didn't seem like things had improved that much, at least not according to these verses. Apparently, no one had been organizing prayer vigils or revival meetings there in Babylon. Back in the beginning of the book, we saw what happened. Out of all the captives from Judah that were brought to the palace, only four were even interested in going God's way, right? All the rest, they said, well, we're just going to dive into the delicacies of the king here. It was just Daniel and his four friends. It's not that they were the only four Jewish boys there. No, there were lots of others. They were just the only four who were interested in going God's way. 
Now, how can we apply this for ourselves? We may hope for national revival. We certainly need it. It's good to pray for it. But you know, even if the people around us aren't setting their face to the Lord, we can. We can be people who are praying and praying together. We can live faithfully. Daniel's whole life, his whole book is a testament to the fact that a person can honor God, can be used by him, can walk uprightly, even in the worst of circumstances. And as we serve God, we remember that he's still the God who brought his people out of Egypt. He's still the God who brought his people out of Babylon. He's still the God of the book of Acts. He's still the God of the Great Awakening and the Welsh Revival and the Jesus Movement. Nothing on his part has changed at all. And so our part as individuals is to turn toward him, believing his truth and to be transformed, to be spiritually revived in our own hearts and lives. Maybe the nation isn't turning their heart toward the Lord and toward Jesus Christ, but I can. And so uh, I'm going to, you know, choose to do that. That's the idea here. Daniel is going to be like, hey, I'll pray. We don't seem to be having a prayer meeting about all of this stuff and having sort of a national day of prayer, you know, Jews within Babylon. Okay, well, I'm going to pray then, and I'm going to revive my heart, and I'm going to turn, I'm going to confess to the Lord. I'm going to ask the Lord to do what he wants to do. I'm going to appeal to God's mercy. I'm going to do these things. And so now Daniel gets to the request. He says, O Lord... According to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate." You notice the prayer's not for himself. It's, it's for God's glory. It is for his sake. Yes, Daniel's hope is that the nation, the city, the sanctuary be restored again and along with them, the people. But his concern is first for the glory of God, for the Lord's sake, he says. Charles Feinberg writes this. This is the highest purpose of prayer, that God might be glorified. His glory outweighs every other conceivable argument or benefit that might appeal to mortal man. And no prayer can ever aspire to anything greater. Not only does Daniel pray for God's glorification, he again appeals to God's mercy. There's no whiff of merit, no whiff of deservingness here. No, he asks God to, by his mercy, bring them back into that relationship of love and protection. That once again, their motto might be, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He says, Lord, we just, we just need your mercy. And I'm here, I'm, I'm the guy praying, I'm asking you for it. We don't deserve it, we haven't earned it, but we're asking you for it because you're a God of great and abundant, full mercy. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear, O oh Lord, forgive, O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. 
Daniel knows that no amount of works or penance or special prayers could merit God's favor or undo the effects of their sin. But he also knows that God's exceedingly great, abounding mercies far outweigh all the sins of all the world. And he knows that the Lord wants to act on behalf of his people. He wants to move in mercy toward those who obey. Important thing to bring out of this prayer. Our friend Dennis Agajanian is fond of saying, Jesus Christ is a greater savior than you are a sinner. And that's true. No matter where he says it or when he says it, it's true, right? God's merciful forgiveness is sufficient to cover all the sins of all the people, of all the places, and all the areas of human history. But as Daniel said back in verse four here, God's mercy is only activated and effective for those who love him and keep his commandments. You know, if you're here tonight and you want God's mercy, if you want forgiveness for the wrong things you've done, if you want to be set free from your sin, God is ready and waiting to do those things for you, uh, but he only gives mercy to those who love him. How do you love him? Jesus said, by believing and obeying. The Lord said in John 14, 21, those who accept my commandments, belief, and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. And so Daniel was a man who expected God to move in his life, and God did. But Daniel could only have that expectation because he went God's way. He obeyed the Lord. He loved the Lord. He trusted the Lord. When a person does not obey the Lord, when a person does not trust the Lord, when a person uh, does not follow the Lord, they cannot expect God's mercy. They cannot expect God to move in great ways, the ways he wants to in their lives. No, it's those that love the Lord and obey his commands. Those are the people that God shows his mercy to. Those are the lives that the Lord works in uh, in great and awesome ways. Now, Daniel had that expectation because he went God's way. He certainly didn't do it perfectly. He identifies himself here over and over as a wicked sinner, but he knew God's mercy was enough to transform the worst man or the best man. He's like, yeah, we all need transformation, and God's mercy was enough for all of them to change them from captive to being called by God's name. I love that phrase there at the end. You and I are called by a name. Peter, uh, Paul said, rather, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that we have been called by God to be his own holy people. And we're called Christian after all, right? Called by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're called by a name. We're called to a life. We're called to listen to the Lord, to walk obediently in the paths that he's carved out for us. As we go, we can marvel at the incredible mercy he's given us day by day. And we can continually enjoy the richness of a personal relationship with this living God. And as we mine for gold in our prayer lives and in our Bible study, we can be confident that we're going to find great treasure and that we are being refined as treasure in the Lord's hands and then scattered throughout the world as jewels of God's love representatives of his power, his mercy, telling others about who the Lord is and what he's done and how he desires to save them. Amen?